0: You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast.
1: It's okay to be uncomfortable and it's a sign of strength if you're feeling really weird about it because that's a very normal human good thing.
2: Hello everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for being here tonight. My name is Mahmoud Fazal and uh, I'll be your host this evening. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that this event is taking place uh, on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respect to their elders past and present. This event is presented by the Wheeler Centre and State Library Victoria as part of the Salon Series, which celebrates the most exciting thinkers, writers, poets, and performers at work today. This morning, uh, I decided to Google love and vulnerability, specifically quotes. Seeing sentences pulled from great texts, graffitied over photographs of sunsets and sublime white expanses really uh, consoles me. (laughs) I found some nice stuff. Um, A waterfall and a quote from Murakami. What happens when people open their hearts? They get better. Murakami, ever so cute. Um, Anais Nin, for my money, a more earthy figure, writes, love never dies a natural death. Uh, imagine a stone, a uh, wide expanse. It dies because we don't know how to replenish its source. It dies of blindness and errors and betrayals. It dies of illness and wounds. It dies of weariness, of witherings, of tarnishings. And then there's Ian McEwan who speaks to a broader systemic thing that we'll be teasing out later. When he writes, a person is, among all else, a material thing, easily torn and not easily mended. I hope this trinity will be further complicated by our amazing writers and artists tonight Rick Morton has been a journalist and writer for over 14 years. He is the winner of the 2013 Kennedy Award for Young Journalist of the Year and the 2017 Kennedy Award for Outstanding Columnist. In 2019, Rick left The Australian, where he worked as the social affairs writer with a particular focus on social policy and is now a senior reporter for The Saturday Paper. Rick's memoir, My Year of Living Vulnerably, traces his journey towards embracing the healing and transformative power of love and his award-winning journalism explores how class, geography, disability, and employment impact Australians' experiences of social inclusion. Sarah Krasnerstein is the best-selling author of The Trauma Cleaner, which won the Victorian Prize for Literature, the Victorian Premier's Award Prize for Nonfiction, and the Australian Book Industry Award for General Nonfiction. Her work has appeared in a variety of publications in Australia, the UK, and America. In her quarterly essay, Not Waving, Drowning, Sarah examines a society that often punishes vulnerability. But it's also a society equipped with the resources to mend this broken system. I just want to start by asking you both what you think the relationship is between vulnerability and the, the very act of writing. Does it help make sense of things or does it raise a new set of emotional problems?
1: Right into it.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, you yeah, know I can. I can
1: <laughs> save us. Save us, um, Rick.
0: No, I mean, uh, you can't fool yourself when you're writing, and I think sometimes when you're writing, you are trying to be a character or you're trying to be someone that you're not, and I think it becomes immediately quite obvious on the page, uh, and you m- maybe not, you you might not be able to name it while you're doing it, but you know something's wrong, and then when you finally pull the pin out and actually be vulnerable and be honest with yourself, it's actually incredibly remarkable and you know, people still come up to me and they're like, oh my god you're so brave and you said all these things and why would you say these things? Aren't people gonna um, know everything about you? And I realised having done it, I, that I don't care. Um, in fact I don't think it's brave at all, it's, right, it's quite nice. Now everyone I meet knows everything about me <laughs> and if they still want to talk to me that's on them. Um, <laughs>
1: I would um, cut and paste and plagiarize that answer. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, unless you kind of <clears throat> open the rib cage, at least in your earlier drafts, before you kind of refine it into something more palatable or not, you really are not going to have anything original to say. Um, and it'll be some form of mm, ventriloquism or mm, something that's not particularly interesting so really your individuality and all of the pains and woundings and small triumphs and yearnings and longings and reaching out the act of reaching out involved in publishing anything um, really demands that vulnerability uh, in order to kind of have, have anything worth saying but I'm I'm in two minds about it because I do find it really difficult. Um, But again, you know, the drafting, you can kind of massage it into something that you can live with or you take the dive and do it anyway. Um, But yeah, for a particular kind of writing that we do, that's not the strict kind of journalistic writing. We do have to be there either directly in the first person eye or in the perspective or and people will know that you're creepy because you're looking very closely at everything all the time, Um, and they'll know how you feel about things and how you carry it, and that's just kind of the bargain that you make in a particular kind of factual personal writing.
2: In your most recent essay, Not Waving Drowning, um, which is quite a, a complex study of the mental health system and the infrastructure... The decision to place yourself and, you know, these vignettes of yourself throughout the essay, was that a difficult decision to make?
1: No, because that's kind of the the only voice I have. that's, That's all I got. That's the only trick in the bag. Other things are difficult, like structure and content and, you know, the kind of factual research and first person kind of interview research. Those all have logistical difficulties and craft and technique difficulties. But the voice uh, that I have is the voice I'm using now and the voice I've used in everything I've ever written. And it does kind of always come back to the, that first person. And that's, for a number of reasons. I mean, that was initially before I ever published anything uh, in the realms of what is called narrative nonfiction. That was all I was reading voraciously for a long time. Um, And what kept me there was that, you know, that filter of the author making clear who they were and how they were seeing the world. And I always, you know, Thought that something like *In Cold Blood* would be much more interesting if we had Truman Capote's account of what he was thinking walking around Kansas. So I think it, it just was what I was normally drawn to. But I think ethically as well, when you do a certain type of writing that requires people to be very vulnerable and to share their own kind of fears and yearnings and you know pains, it, it, it just is has has a kind of, a, this is weird, a better energy, but it's an ethical energy, and it is reflects what's happening in the interview, which is I'm saying, okay, well, I can't relate to that specific situation, but was the felt experience like this, because I have an analogous situation where I felt a similar way. So putting that on the page is like, I'm there with you. It's a kind of an act of solidarity. Um and it's more interesting. It can solve certain craft problems when you don't have a way of connecting A to B. You can say, "Here I am struggling with how to tell you this." Um so for all those reasons, I guess that that's to date the only voice I have. So, yeah.
2: <laughs> Was it that personal subjective experience that initiated this essay or how how did how did you come come to write this?
1: So th- this is a topic that I've been um, kind of marinating in for about 20 years and I said to Rick when we discussed it in Sydney I'm you know I got such a limited bag of tricks or interesting things to say but I will repeat it I'm sorry I'm now boring Rick but uh, I had started I can't believe
0: I came here for this this is terrible <laughs> I
1: cannot, I cannot. um It had started as my master's thesis in law, uh, which I was unable to complete because of my own mental health issues. I couldn't leave the house. Uh, And then it was a different iteration. It was very much about this kind of gap between the Australian rhetoric of mateship and our pattern of, um, you know, punitive... uh, Punitive paranoias in the realms of, you know, indigenous justice and uh, asylum seekers. Uh, and I couldn't kind of make any progress with that thesis because of my own mental health. And it, it, that gap continued to kind of expand and include so many more things in, and include that experience uh, uh, that I had as well of how do I kind of go and ask for, special consideration when I'm afraid of its discrediting impact and not comfortable having this conversation with an anonymous administrative man. Apologies to him if he's here. Um, You know, or going on and being like, well, okay, I can't do the master's. I'm not going to end up in academia like I thought I had, uh, but I'll have this job. And now I've used up all my personal days for You know my own mental health and how do I get more when I'm just simply unable to come to the office so all of these kind of lived experiences as a system user went into that gap Um, and then my experiences in the law of seeing people who ended up in prison or in the courts for want of earlier treatment care and support you know all of that kind of went into the basket so it was a long gestational period
2: and um In your interviews with subjects like Eliza, and there are a number of quite long-form kind of case studies uh, in the text, you say you were listening on two levels. What exactly were you trying to figure out? What did you mean by that?
1: So I'm listening journalistically. Um, And this is probably probably an experience that you've had as well. I'm sure we've we've all had it. You're listening kind of with that impartial... Mm, kind of objective eye of just the facts ma'am and then you're listening again to all of the resonances that are kind of pinging back and forth like a pinball machine and how you are relating to what they they said in your own experience and how it connects to other things you've seen in the culture politics or you know other things that people have told you And so I'm I'm having all these kind of connections that are made at at the level of detail. And um, those two selves, of the work self and the personal self, what I can get from it factually that's interesting, but what I can take from it in my own life to feel like I'm less alone. I guess that's how the two levels would.
2: Rick, how do you keep that subjective self uh, away from your reporting uh, for
0: the Saturday paper? Uh, do you know what, increasingly this is terrible and I shouldn't say this, but increasingly I don't um, and, but no, I, I think that goes to a broader issue with journalism, like I, I got my cadetship when they still had money in newspapers um, I caught the tail end of the good years so like in the year 2005 I started the Gold Coast and on January something or other, 2006 they broke the record for the largest paper size ever printed in Australia which was 600 and something pages most of that was real estate advertising <laughs> Um, I abused the cab charge system like you would not believe. (laughs) (laughs) There was so much money. And then, um, because of that, I believed wholeheartedly everything that they taught me from these old, lovely, um, but also crusty sub-editors who were scary and really good at their jobs, and they taught you how to do journalism. And the first thing is, it's like, you are not the story. Ever, ever, ever. Um, You don't have an opinion. You don't have a view. And there are always two sides to a story. Um, the older I got, and this, I must admit, kind of came to me slowly over the period of the years that I was at The Australian, the more I realised was that there is a huge disconnect between what the people who were telling me those rules um, knew about the world and what I knew about the world, which was vastly different. Um, And it it was always through the prism of the welfare system slash people who were living below the poverty line, based on my own mum's experience. And so the... You know, this was a long period and it's been a slow waking up um, and I'm still getting there. Um, I joke to my friends that I'm getting radicalised as I get older um, because I was, like, kind of dumb. Yeah, I was kind of thank you. Cheer um, it's, um, it's in 20 more years, I'll be radical then. But at the moment, I feel like I'm just being sensible. Um, and I feel like we do our readers a disservice when we don't give them context, when we pretend there's only two sides to a story. Um, or when we pretend that there is an objective um, or th- th- there's kind of this postmodern, there is no available truth in this particular issue when, I'm sorry, there is a truth to poverty, is that it hurts people and that it makes them unwell, and which is something you cover so well in your essay, and every element of the government system that perpetuates these things is actually doing humanity a, an incredible disservice, and I'm not going to be subjective about that because I've lived that.
2: And, um your own personal journey in, you know, overcoming this idea of vulnerability, how, how has that informed your journalism? Uh, and, and exactly what you're talking about, uh, Ilis helped you tease out that nuance from from these subjects.
0: I think I started out very scared, and I think it's because I started out in News Corp newspapers where it's, it's very masculine. Um, like, I can't even begin to tell you how masculine my first newsroom was. Um, and I joked about it, but it was also kind of true. I think the reason I lasted so long was that because I saw all the editors kind of as my dad. And I was like, I was it's trying to, to... unpack I, I, No, I know there's a lot to unpack there. We're going to talk about this later. Um, but, but there was, like, they were angry. They didn't accept me for who I was. Um, they were all controlling. And they dressed like a cowboy. Um, and I was like, I need to do everything I can to impress these people. And it was a disaster. Um... And so I think my natural instinct is I am the person I am now. I always was. But there was a part of me from my late high school years until well into my mid to late 20s where I patched it up, I papered it over, I put up the bricks and I tried to lean into this thing where I'm like, all I want is success and to impress these awful people. Um, not all of them were awful, but many of them were. Um, I'll let you guess the ratio. Um, <laughs> so the little jelly bean jar at the show. Um, how many were terrible? Um, and I think over time I realised that the, I'm not the kind of journalist... I am answering your question. I know it doesn't seem like that right now, but I am. Um, I can see the end in my mind. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so I, over time I was... I realised that I'm not the kind of journalist that can go to a party and network. I, in fact, the best moment of my entire life was when I started earning enough money where I didn't need to go to those free events ever because I could buy my own wine. Um, and I didn't get yarns or stories by being like ringing people up and being like, give this to me and not that other journo because I'm the one that deserves it. I got it by accident and almost by osmosis because I was just kind of curious and shy and I connected with people as people first and then I was almost embarrassed to ask them about the thing that I wanted to ask them, which was my work, which was my job. And so I think I've become the vulnerable person um, by accident, kind of like the leaking from a damn wall, and then it eventually just became this flood. And I was like, oh, this is, this is nice. This is a nice way to be. So that is my answer to your question.
2: <laughs> and for you, Sarah, does vulnerability uh, inform or interrupt your sense of a story?
1: Oh, pro- probably both. Um, because what I'm trying to get to, I, I start off not knowing what I'm trying to get to. I know that there's something there. Um, and ideally I'll be given a long enough deadline that I can sit with the story and the people and I'll see change over time. And the things that have to date kind of pissed me off in the research of, oh, it's distracting, or why am I hearing that, or stop talking about that, we're talking about this. They've turned out to be the story. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I think it can can work both ways. Um, But unless you're kind of willing to sit in the discomfort of whatever you're learning or how challenging it is, whatever it requires from you or it takes from you, you're not going to get <clears throat> anything that anyone else could, couldn't get. And you're not going to be able to put your signature on a certain perspective or come up with something, a new way of looking at it. So it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, which I think is the lesson of things like yoga, I'm not sure. I've only been doing it for 20 years, like meditation, and I feel like I'm a beginner. And it's the same with writing. And it is like, but I think there's something in the discomfort, and what just sitting with it a little longer each time to find out what it is that's being challenged. That that's always the sign that you're getting you're getting somewhere, because nothing ever has a middle. Is the other thing for me. Um, You know, there's just this endless sense of flailing around, trying to you know walk around a topic, hold up different parts of it, uh, the more you learn, the more you know you don't know, chasing all these rabbits down the hole, and then, you know, your file date comes up and then it's done. So there's no middle. Um, but I think the discomfort has been a part of anything that I've done to date that I don't hate. Yeah. <laughs>
2: in, the, in the text, um... I read that it, it, on the blurb that it examines a society that often punishes vulnerability. Do you believe that we live in a society that punishes vulnerability? vulnerability?
1: Yes, I believe that, absolutely. Why? Uh, um, I think that it is both conscious and unconscious. I think that the uh, effect of... Um, m- m- A significant number of interactions with our public institutions, whether it's education or the law uh, or our health systems, uh, a lot of media, education, is that uh, opportunities for care and connection and early intervention are um, passed, passed over for reasons of time, and economic efficiency, and a moralizing narrative that we have, that, you know, pulling yourself out of strife is a matter of uh, character. And uh, so the effect, by many well-meaning people in those institutions, but, you know, definitely facilitated by the electorate and what we choose to see and unsee, the consequences that we choose to, uh, you know, give to our politicians or not. Uh, The systems that we support, the news that we click on, all of these things are ways of keeping a very punitive response in play. Um, And it was certainly what the people I interviewed for the quarterly essay were uh, telling me, that their interactions with this system, which is really just millions of small human interactions, when they were at their sickest made them sicker.
2: Can you give us a brief anecdote, uh, an example of when this whole thing was kind of affirmed for you.
1: Sure, so um, the um, young woman that I call Eliza is a 21-year-old worker at Berry Street. She's a lived experience consultant, and she uses kind of her experiences of the uh, education system, but also the health system, her experiences of sexual violence in her home and of homelessness to uh, offer feedback to uh, public sector and services Services about programs that could be improved and how they could be improved, um, and something that really stuck in my mind in one of our conversations was when she told me about being expelled from school in grade eight and how you know it was on the surface about a chair that she threw at a teacher, but it made me pause and think. You know, how we are equipping our teachers to recognize signs of um, strife in the home, recognize a child who's in need of help, and meeting that with expulsion in grade eight is so poisonous and it's so criminogenic and it's so punitive um, that it really stopped me in my tracks. Because when you think of the people that are called to become teachers, it is, you know, they have so much in common with those who are called to any caretaking profession, we don't equip them to do their job, and something dies in that system. And so it becomes, you know, by virtue of what is not seen or willfully unseen, a way of causing children to hate themselves, not participate in society, not participate in the benefits of society, um, and, yeah, really informed my thinking that we need to do this so much better.
2: Uh, Rick? Do we live in a society that punishes vulnerability?
1: Uh, Yes.
0: Yes, we do. Um, Not as much as I thought when I was, like, younger, but in a personal sense. I feel like it's getting better to be personally vulnerable. But the systems, as Sarah points out, are incredibly um, harsh. And, you know, none of it's set up to help the practitioners do what they're there to do. Like, I tell this story, I think I told it in my first book, but when I was going through my... Um, I call it my spiral, like a nebula, um, I guess, or some kind of um, pretty alarming galaxy. I was um, having all these mental breakdowns and they were just like rolling series of them. And I remember this GP literally just kicked me out of his office because I was trying to renew my mental health care plan and he hadn't been told by the receptionist that that's what I was, I'd booked to do and that's a 15-minute appointment rather than what he thought was a five or a 10-minute appointment. He hadn't had lunch. He had lots more people to see. But he was so aggressive about it. And honestly, like, I remember walking out of that... ...because I needed to see a psychologist again... ...but I couldn't until... I couldn't afford it. And I remember just literally thinking, I'm like... I, ...I honestly feel like just walking out into traffic... ...because it was just so... ...like, that to me felt like the end... ...I'm like, well, I tried. Like, I did the bit that I thought was what was being asked of me. And you see it... I mean, I was at that point, I was middle class on, on paper... I had a good income, I was terrible with money, so I never had any, but I should have been able to handle it, and I couldn't, and I kept thinking about people who were, like the millions of people who were below that point, and that's the kind of stuff where, you know, the moment you admit vulnerability, you're either laughed at from a kind of institutional point of view or you're penalised. Um, you know, we had a $2 billion robo-debt um system which was illegal and I think it was Richard Flanagan that called it illegal and evil, um, going after people who were vulnerable in terms of their work search trying to get off welfare and therefore earning income and therefore um, being at the whim of this mechanical beast which told them that they had not reported their income properly based on a complete lie and then pursued them, some of them to their death and um, for money that was never real and it was never owed and that's replicated everywhere through this system like the you know you have to prove you know it takes so much strength i think to be vulnerable to be open about what is impacting you and sometimes you don't even know how to describe it yourself it's like i you know i can't describe the overwhelm that has afflicted me in my past where i can't pick up a phone to even begin the search right and yet you know, if you're in the employment services system, they make you prove how unwell you are and they will just as likely not believe you and then cut off your income support because you haven't met a requirement of this apparently loving, beautiful system that's there to support you. So I think uh, from a personal point of view, you know, um, love, love freely, be vulnerable, it's great. Um, But from a system's point of view, we have a long, long way to go. And I think a lot of that comes down to our own understanding of, you know, people's suffering and their own pain. I think there is a tendency to be like, well, I've got mine and to not spend too much time with someone else's and therefore we allow our systems to be worse because of it.
2: There was also a story you broke uh, last month about NDIS reforms targeting children under nine. Can you just elaborate on that?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, so buried in that story, um, and, God, has this been broadcast? I don't know whether I should... um, But, like, I thought the top of the story should have been different because in the middle of the story is this piece where the National Disability Insurance Scheme had put out these new tender contracts for what they call partners in the community. So it's the people who do all of the outsourced work for the agency. So it's uh, local area coordinators and the early um, childhood um, services. Now, for the first time ever in these documents for the local area coordinators who do planning and pre-planning and the telephone conversations with people to tell them what they're getting, they've slipped in there that these providers who are third parties, will be required to do functional assessments, which is almost exactly what they were trying to get through with the legislation, which was independent assessments. And they were fudging and saying, oh, we've always had some form of functional requirement assessment for early intervention. I'm like, I didn't ask about that. It's the LACs. They've never had that role. They've never had to do it. Um, And here is a system, uh, an institution, that was so spectacularly... um, like how down for trying to slip through this awful, awful legislation with holes you could drive a semi-trailer through. The federal minister lost to every other minister in the room at um, a disability minister's meeting and it was a sensational defeat. And then they've just gone and put out a tender um, to do the exact same thing. And they won't even admit it. And at the same time... So what they've always done with the children, to go to your direct question, and it's a really hard one to get across in print, but what they've always done with the early intervention stuff, which is good if you can get access to it, but they've sometimes used it, and they've admitted this to me on the phone in the past, they've used it to triage how many people make it onto the NDIS. So they will say, and they have said, you know, we're actually providing immediate support, we're not going to make you get... um, go through all the jumps and the hoops and we won't make you pay for any of this, but you can get some pretty standard early intervention support for your children who have these conditions. And that's great. But this whole early intervention gateway is literally a holding pen where they try and stream people out. And the biggest cost pressures over time from the very beginning have been children and young people, particularly with autism, um, but with uh, kind of uh, general um, developmental delays Things like that. Now these are all kids who need support to one degree or another, but the NDIA doesn't want them on the NDIS because they think that they can just get some funding through the incredibly, terribly set up education system through the criminal justice system. All these systems that don't do the jobs they're meant to do. So that's what I mean when I say that they're, when they, they want to expand that gateway from kids seven and under to nine and under, which will help some kids, but it will also allow the agency another lever to manage the numbers making it onto the NDIS, which is why they're doing it.
2: Sarah, in your essay, um, the deputy secretary for mental health at Victorian Department of Health told you, "quote You can't plan your way through solving complex problems. Instead, these problems need to be solved over time through experimentation and iteration and, sh- and shared learning." What do you make of that now? And does that explain our history of dead ends with Royal Commissions and so on?
1: Yeah, very much. Um, you know, I hadn't seen kind of these failures in mental health care and what Rick is describing, you know, disability assistance schemes, um, through the lens of systems change. That came quite late in my thinking. Um, but what she was describing was, you know, the The problem isn't the problem, it's the lack of relationships that are capable of maintaining the flexibility um, to react to the situations that come up in any human system and to make improvements and to learn as we go in good faith. That's kind of the key thing. Whether we're talking about mental health reform specifically or any social problem that arises in a highly complex society without those relational conditions, in which unlikely people are brought together to collaborate for the common good, then we will fail every time. Um, and, you know, just you, the example of mental health care, which is, you know, what the essay is, is about. Um, you know, that Victorian reform is the best we have in the country at the moment. The data and the way it was sourced is the best we've seen probably to date in the country in an area which has, you know, numerous formal inquiries. And even operating, you know, at the best level, we still are looking at a 10-year reform agenda to get where we need to be. So that means budgets have to be on point. Collaboration between sectors and services have to be, you know, smooth for that whole ten-year period at least, and I am not optimistic about it because we know, you know, open up any Facebook page or your Twitter page, and we know, or you know, go to any family dinner, that facts alone don't move the world. So we have this beautifully articulated program about how to include everyone in, you know, a system that is there to make our kids healthier. And every age group healthier, marginalized groups, everyone. And the problem has never been kind of an absence of empirical data. The problem has been a will to change. And we are not we've not, you know, been done any favors by politicians who have not modeled the change that we need to see in the world. So yes, it's it's very much about maintaining those relational conditions. That would allow us to respond to what we know um, is not working in all of these areas, and it's not doesn't start with relational change. It starts with personal change, because the triage system in NDIS is the same triage system in emergency um, <clears throat> healthcare. It is meant to keep people out. It is meant to kind of attend to the worst or most deserving or those who perform their sicknesses most effectively. Um, And it's all predicated on this notion that this happens to other people, other people's children. And so looking at it in the essay, as I did through kind of this framework of psychoanalysis, it is a projective identification. It is locating what we have been taught to revile in ourselves, which is the basic human fact of our interdependency and vulnerability, only in other people, where we can, you know, show a benevolence towards it at a safe remove or fear it at a safe remove or criminalize it at a safe remove, but it's only about other people when really it's about all of us. So, you know, those relational conditions do start with people making the very uncomfortable choice to say, I'm not good today. It's not just how are are you okay? It's actually I'm having a shit day. My head is not doing me any favors today or being frank about, you know, I can't show up because my mental health—not because I have a cold or not because I've got a childcare issue—but I'm mentally not coping today, and I need this X number of days, or you know, time to see my therapist or access to a therapist. But we are, you know, unable to even get to those relational conditions at this point because we are so uncomfortable in our own selves because we've been taught to be.
2: Rick, does this uh, recent change in government inspire any hope? you
0: in this space? Um,
2: they
0: no, I feel like we should give the people something hopeful. <laughs> um, and I will do my best to do that now. No, look, I mean God, I've got no filter anymore. I was stoked. Ex- I was stoked. Um, because um, I think um, a truly vile human being is no longer Prime Minister, so that's great, um, and I can say that now. Um, he... But do you believe there will be policy, no. policy reform? I mean, no, I, no, I don't think <laughs> there will be. Um, I believe there will be um, slight improvements, or at least I hope there will be slight improvements, and the intention behind what the Labor government, in consultation hopefully with the Teals and the Greens... Um, ...or even, you know, the Liberal Party. Um, you know, I, I hope that they will try to do things a little bit better... ...but I think this goes to Sarah's point. The system is its own thing. And we really need... I mean, the, the fact that the National Disability Insurance Scheme exists at all... ...is because there was a huge community, grassroots-driven campaign... ...to fix what was an underfunded, broken system. Now, I personally think the NDIS as a scheme is not good and that we should have just poured the money into existing programs that actually knew who their clients were and knew how to target them. But that argument's... I don't think we're going to unscramble that egg, so it's probably not useful to talk about it in that in that frame. And I certainly would never have said that at the beginning because I didn't know what was going to be good or what wasn't. I just think it's not helping. But to change those systems, you need to have power and influence and a lot of pressure from people who want that change. We have to want the change. We have to want the mental health system to get better. And I'm sure everyone in this room does. But we need to figure out ways to bring the rest of Australia on board to these things. And particularly changing our attitudes to the criminal justice system, for example, and to welfare. You know, even among, I've seen this on social media, among well-meaning, progressive-type people who are certainly supporters of the Labor Party, um, who still have this kind of view that, you know, people should move for a job, um, even though they're living in poverty, who still have this view that somehow someone's brought this on themselves and that we can't bring everyone along with us. and. That, to me, is still a kind of a vicious attitude that I think we need to overcome. And so this government will do a few things better. They'll certainly say a few more nicer things. And I think that does matter to have someone in power who's not giving full permission to the worst instincts in our society. Um, but it's, it's only going to get us so far. Um, have I made huge mistakes by just being, like, totally off? I think
1: that was very yeah. optimistic. That yeah, okay. was good.
0: Yeah, good. Um, I'm a professional. <laughs> Um, we'll just cut that part out of the recording, yeah? Yeah. Good. Uh, I'm just... want to take this opportunity to throw
2: to the floor if there are any questions. Um, I believe there may be a roving microphone around. Yes, there is. Thank you. Um, a question for Rick on vulnerability. How careful are you of censoring your speech? Clearly, you <laughs> shared a bit with us just then... But do you freak out about Twitter, social media? Um, can you talk to us about that as your sort of profile has risen, what that's done to your vulnerability?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I, to be honest, it hasn't changed. I've become more aware of the fact that, you know, I used to want everyone to love me all the time, everyone, um, and which is a really poisonous way of going through life, and it will end in tears, and it's not possible And in fact, I've discovered over the last 10 years that there are people out there who don't like me. And that's okay. Um, You know, I I can't win them all over and that's fine. But I do, like, I don't think, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to me about being vulnerable is writing this column when I was still at The Australian about how my dad used to watch Poor Rifle when he was a cricketer and he had an earring and he used to call him a faggot um, or a pufter. And I still remember all of that language Years later, when I was coming out, and the worst thing that 's ever happened to in terms of having my vulnerability weaponized against me, bearing in mind that I am you know a cis white male um, was Mark Latham literally creating another Twitter account called paul Rifle's Earring and using it to harass me on Twitter, which felt gross, but also I felt kind of more sad for mark i 'm um, like this this is what your your life has become like. I'm gonna I'm gonna set up a Twitter account called Mark Latham's sad Twitter account about poor rifle's left earring. <laughs> um, but like it's worse for women, it's worse for other minorities, and like the I I feel like there are people who feel like they can't put any of that stuff out there because it will be weaponised against them. I mean, my friend goes on TV and her hair is weaponised against her. Um, if she says something someone doesn't like, she's got terrible hair, or it's you know. Con- control your hair like it's an entity, um, which in summer it is. Um, but um, it hasn't changed my my, I, I feel freer than I ever have.
1: And you should know that there is no one who wants to be liked more than Mark Latham.
0: Oh. <laughs> right? That's what that ends in. That's what that ends in. It's like the, uh, the uh, villain origin story in a comic book. <laughs> Run! <laughs>
1: The step count for the evening. (laughs) Um, I have a question actually for the whole panel, including you Mahmood, around each of you has something that you have talked about vulnerably, but also written about as well. And, you know, I guess I had a question for the, you know, how do we, as the wider audience, what advice would you give for people wanting to open up about their vulnerability? or anything that, you know, potentially they've hidden away or not wanted to talk about, or how do they share that vulnerability more openly? I'm just thinking, I I don't have a direct answer, but something that's coming to me, not like a voice is coming to me, but a memory of something that I say to my oldest son is, you know, there's nothing as scary as something that you can't see or you don't know about or that you can't have a name for, and once you just do it, like, there's no good time. It's like anything, you know, you're never going to have enough storage or enough money or enough anything. You just have to do these things, and the first time you do it, unless you're talking to well, maybe just Mark Latham, Um, the person who you've chosen to disclose that with, or, you know, will, I, more likely than not, respond in a very human, good way. And that's kind of the entry to another dimension, which is like, oh, we don't have to pretend this, I mean, you still have to wear pants when you leave the house, but once you realize, I don't actually have to put on this, like, rictus and pretend everything's okay, and I can just say, you know, to be honest with you, it's a shit day, or what have you, they, you know, that energy, again, the, you know, whatever, juju, weird, hexing energy, it, it does, it does kind of take on a life of its own, and it's very hard to go back after that, um, yeah, it's probably not... Not particularly helpful, but, you know, you can... If you just give it a go, it'll in just a little bit, it does get easier.
2: Um, for me, I guess it was... Uh, when I first started writing, it was a lot of op-ed kind of stuff. Um, and I was in an environment that was very masculine, in a hyper-masculine environment, where you did not talk to people about certain issues and... Um, problems or feelings that you might have had and so I always found it a lot easier to just write about it and um, publish it and even if they read it um, it was kind of uh, inspired this conversation uh, of sorts where we never actually spoke about what I was trying to deconstruct in person but I knew that they were reading it um, and it was just a way of it was just yeah I think I, I think that was that that's what kind of inspired me was trying to convey a message to people from the world that I escaped um, in some way uh, and if that meant being transparent not to sound like a fucking martyr or something but like yeah if it, if it meant just being public uh, you know I thought I thought that that's that's enough of a reason for me to just give it a crack that's for you that's beautiful
0: you're going to make me cry you're going to make me blush yeah Wow. Well. Um, this wouldn't be the first time. Um, <laughs> uh, letting him in too deep. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I always feel like I need to um, give people a joke occasionally. Um, maybe it's not a joke, maybe it's not funny, but like sometimes I feel like I need to be an idiot um, to go with my vulnerability, because it can be a bit heavy sometimes. And I feel like that's a nice human thing to do, is to offer some people something light. Um, but I forgot the original question. It was like, how do you be... Like, how do you actually do the vulnerability, right? Was that... Yeah, I'm just going to... Sorry, I'm just... I got confused. Um, This is how I do it. I'm just... I've got no filter. I I like to make myself um, human because it makes me feel more comfortable and I think it makes other people around me feel more comfortable. And it it did take me a long time to realise that. But I think what Sarah was saying is that it really is... It's kind of like, um, uh, you know... It's baby steps. Like, you, if you do a little bit and then you're like, oh, that was actually kind of nice, and then you go a little bit further <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're, like, the most vulnerable person in the world and it's just you can't go back anymore because where you came from is cold and dark and frightening and this is much nicer. Um, it's like those videos of monkeys that have been let out of labs for the first time and, like, they touch grass and they're, like, jumping up and down with excitement. That's what it feels like. Okay. Um, you think I'm joking, but uh, I'm, I've been there.
1: The, and it's, it is a touchy-feely lovely thing, but it's a radical act because everything that's normalized in society that's just shit depends on us nodding and smiling and playing along. You can only, you can't, it's very hard work to normalize something if people are not coming along with you. And we have, <clears throat> I think one of the powerful things to come out of Me Too is, you know, a kind of call to look at our role in reflexively smiling and normalizing what is someone else's shame, Um, because the threat to our own self-concept of, oh, I turned out to be somebody who wasn't worthy enough to be accorded that measure of respect or minimum human decency or what have you, and I'll just smile and normalize it and society is fine. But there's no unchlorinated areas of the pool when it comes to any of this. So whether it's me too or turning Albo turning back his first boat, yet in case anyone felt too optimistic, um, or any you know anything that depends on us playing along with this concept of us and them, or that the past is resting safely in the past. It's much better to have a bit of discomfort and just to sit there and let it hang. And one thing that we had to become very good at in order to do our job is as much as we are trying to come up with a fleeting intimacy and sense of communitas in our work, allowing an awkward silence to hang when the time calls for it. And you just have to sit there and let the other person feel it, and that's part of the job. And so it's okay to be uncomfortable. And it's a sign of strength if you're feeling really weird about it, because that's a very normal human good thing. So I think that's lots of ways of maybe not answering the question, but we have tried our best. (laughs) (laughs) We did our best. (laughs) Gold star. Any other?
2: Might have time for one last question.
0: I think that hand there was up first. that was like my horse racing camera, of like, <laughs> photo finish. Um, good evening. Uh, just a, another question for anyone. I guess kind of a compliment to the question about the ways that society punishes vulnerability. Um, in terms of what comes to mind when you think about ways that maybe we reward it as well, um, or ways that, you know, at least parts of the world reward vulnerability, and what you'd like to see more of in terms of you know, what comes to mind in that regard. <laughs> I'll I'll answer quickly. I mean, just from a personal point of view, I and this is stupid because it shows how much I was judging the stereotype, but when I wrote um, both my first book and then my second book about being vulnerable, the amount of emails I'd get from people who I would never have thought, A, would ever read the book, especially farmers in Queensland and graziers, um, and, like, honestly, I would, like, seize up. They'd be like, hi, Rick, I'm so-and-so. Um, I'm a grazier from North Queensland, I'll be like, oh, fuck, here we go, Mark Latham's back. <laughs> um, and then they'll be like, I cried for the first time and you explained so much about myself. And, like, it wasn't one or two emails, it was over and over and over again. And I feel like the reward is the next part of the Mexican wave. Like, it's the next... Mm. It's the undulation of this thing that you've created. And I think it's possible to see that in the world if you do it. And it's like, I don't... I'm not an ambi-pambi person, I'm not... Like, uh, you know, I'm from Queensland, I was raised to be scared of hippies. I'm not anymore, Um, I'm not, but that's honestly kind of um, the vibe, right? Um, But I kind of, I I do really genuinely believe that what you want in the world starts in your own mind. Um, I'm not in terms of manifesting, but in terms of having the language for the thing you wanna see in the world. And if you see that thing and you practice that thing and you do that thing, it is a infectious, um, wrong word to use in a pandemic, but it's great. Um, and, and B, um, it, it makes you feel um, like you've done something worthwhile, I think. And it's just the tiniest little thing is the best little thing. And you can do that every day. That's, that's my bit.
1: And I think, you know, like Andy said in his poem, the first one, it's, you know, the choice of what, what you want to carry. So at a certain point, not being vulnerable and not being honest and not, you know, calling things out or being honest about, you know, what, whatever you're feeling, becomes heavier than, you know, the discomfort of just doing it. And so it is a choice of kind of which rock you'd prefer to push up the hill. Um, and life often makes that choice for you. You know, we hold very tightly to our stories. We don't like to look at things directly. But if you can walk through that fire, it's often worth it on the other side and easier as well, or not.
2: Thank you so much for your time tonight. It was... Thank you. Thank
1: you. (laughs) thank thank you. you.
2: (laughs) Thank you for being so vulnerable. This was Mahmoud Fazal in conversation with Sarah Krasnistein and Rick Morton as a part of the Salon series. This event was recorded on the
1: 27th of May 2022 at Hanson Hall and Conversation Quarter at the State Library.
2: The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.